Hello, great to have your company again. You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories from around the globe. I'm James Paniki. And today we're talking biometrics. My voice that you're listening to at this very point in time, whatever its many limitations, is unique to me. It's a physical attribute that can, in theory at least, be collected and analysed to identify me. It's my vocal fingerprint. So why is that important today? Well, because the accumulation and use of biometric data is fast becoming a significant issue of debate within regulatory circles. And the reason for that is pretty obvious. We're increasingly using our voice to direct our smart devices. Now, firstly, there's a privacy issue here, and we'll see how that's playing out in the US at the moment. And then we'll consider the antitrust implications by examining a forward-looking study in the European Union that delves into this very issue. Lewis Crofts will join us from Brussels in just over 10 minutes' time. Mike Swift is MLEX's Chief Global Digital Risk Correspondent, and he joins me now from San Francisco. Okay, Mike, now firstly, tell me what ordering a bag of French fries at McDonald's has to do with emerging technology and privacy issues. Well, I think most people, when their tummy is rumbling and they pull up in the drive through window at McDonald's, they don't think that the pimply-faced kid, you know, taking their order might be part of a big artificial intelligence apparatus. But um, a lawsuit, which was recently filed in Chicago, alleges that that's exactly what's happening, that uh, McDonald's uh, acquired an AI company, a, a voice recognition company in 2019, which it is planning to use to uh, not only make the pimply-faced kid less necessary to take your order, but to essentially create files so it would know its customers and what they had ordered in the past and uh, would help you know tailor their order to future orders. So um, it's a very interesting case very early yet, so we'll have to see where it goes, but a really interesting example of how uh, these technologies are really being deployed in the mainstreams of life uh, increasingly. And and Mike, just to be absolutely clear about the McDonald's uh, analogy, so what they're suggesting is that they would be able to recognize a customer's voice when he or she pulls up and places the order for the Big Mac or whatever, um, and therefore they could tailor Um, suggestions uh, for that customer. Now, that would be similar, I suppose. An online analogy to that would be Amazon tailoring um, suggestions every time you log on because they know who you are, right? Exactly. And um, so this is an allegation. It it, it has not been proven. Um, It's the suit was just filed. But the allegation is that McDonald's is uh, preparing systems that are uh, or is already testing systems that not only would use voice recognition to identify people, but would also take photos of license plates. And so they they would match you up that way and identify you that way. So um, as you know, it's early days, so we have to see where it goes. But it's, it's a little bit when you think about it. So. Mm. Now, uh, Chicago is in the state of Illinois. Uh, this might give us a chance to talk about the Illinois Biometric 
Information Privacy Act, or BIPA. Do you pronounce the acronym? I uh, presume you BIPA. do, right? BIPA is the way you pronounce BIPA. it here, yes. Okay, BIPA, <laughs> there you go. And So why has BIPA arguably become the world's most costly privacy law? Well, so a number of U.S. states um, have started to regulate biometric privacy. So um, recognizing that your DNA, your fingerprints, your voice print, your retinal scans are identifiers that can't be changed, you know, such as a, a government ID uh, can be changed if uh, your identity is breached. And what's different about the Illinois and unique about the Illinois law is that it includes a private right of action, which means that uh, consumers can file class action lawsuits. And the, the law, the BIPA law includes quite substantial statutory damages if a company is found in court to have violated the law. So um, this was a law that was passed in 2008, sort of before these um, biometric uh, products really became mainstream. And uh, as a result, it's a, a much tougher law and has been already proven costly for several tech companies. Mm. More costly even, say, than the European Union's GDPR, which we've talked about many times before. Right. I mean, uh, Facebook, earlier this year signed off on a $650 million settlement on BIPA claims in, in a case brought in California. Uh, earlier this year, TikTok agreed to pay $92 million to settle a BIPA case. And, you know, virtually every big tech company has been hit with some sort of BIPA claims. Uh, we're just reporting today on uh, the fact that Apple uh, lost in a district court in East St. Louis, Illinois, and is going to have to defend claims that its Photos app uh, violated BIPA. So um, it's uh, really a significant regulatory uh, problem for any tech company that uses voice recognition, facial recognition, or any sort of biometric technology. Well, maybe this is a good chance to talk about biometric data. I mean, we've riffed off, obviously, the idea of someone going to the McDonald's drive through but what kinds of biometric data have caused companies problems uh, in the past? So in Facebook's case and also in TikTok's case, it was uh, very much limited to facial recognition. So um, Facebook um, years ago uh, installed a feature that allows you to easily uh, tag suggestions. So when you upload a photo of your friend, um, Facebook instantly seems to know who that friend is before you even have to scroll through a list identifying them. And that's through um, a feature called Tag Suggestions, which is based on facial recognition. So basically, Facebook developed one of the world's largest databases of uh, faces, facial uh, geometries that identify people uniquely, and uh, it deployed those. And um, it not only landed uh, Facebook in trouble with um, this BIPA case that required them to spend $650 million to settle, but it was also part of the um, Federal Trade Commission's $5 billion privacy enforcement against Facebook uh, for privacy violations. So it's, it's uh, really been a significant regulatory issue for companies. Mm. Now, your uh, story on this uh, that, that you wrote with our colleague Amy Miller um, focuses on two cases against McDonald's and Nuance Communications. 
What happened there and what did the companies allegedly do wrong in each one of these cases? Right. So um, the, the McDonald's case is brand new, but the, the Nuance case is, is an interesting one because it's progressed a little further. Um, Nuance is a company which is based right outside Boston, Massachusetts, and it's currently being uh, acquired by Microsoft as part of a 19.7 billion dollar deal. And the allegation there is um, by a a plaintiff um, who says that when she um, called, she wanted to, uh, she was trying to uh, track a package that she'd sent by FedEx. And her allegation is that um, technology made by Nuance and deployed by FedEx had captured her uh, voice print, uh, identifying her by her voice. And Nuance is really um, denying that. They've said that um, the plaintiffs here have confused speech recognition with um, voice print identification, which is really two different types of technology. They're saying, yeah, we, we our um, technology allows computers to understand the spoken word, but it doesn't necessarily identify an individual. So um, that's going to be a matter for the court to sort out, you know, whose facts are correct. Um, but it sort of uh, sort of highlights the boundary between biometric data and just regular data that's used for artificial intelligence purposes. All right. So can we expect the uh, regulatory risk around biometric data to spread beyond Illinois and BIPA? Now that I can pronounce the acronym, I obviously <laughs> want to do it as, as often as I can. Is it likely to spread to other states and even possibly internationally? Uh, I think it is likely. I, I, I think that, um, you know, as uh, these technologies are deployed more and more, um, I think people may have issues with them. Um, uh, experts here in the U.S. are saying that uh, that public schools are even deploying facial recognition algorithms in public schools, and schools are trying to um, you know, you may have heard that we have very serious problems with shootings in mass shootings in schools, and yep. uh, one application might be uh, school. Some schools hope to scan the faces of students to detect um, and apply emotion uh, algorithms that can detect, you know, an emotionally disturbed student before he pulls out a gun in class, and. That um, obviously would be, would be a good thing to stop that from happening, but um, whether people are going to be willing to see that sort of technology deployed in a mass scale remains very much to be seen. I mean, we're seeing uh, many cities across the United States and states that are really uh, moving to limit the use of facial recognition technology. So so um, it's a very uncertain future, the degree to which these um, cases are rolling out. Uh, maybe the best known case is a outfit called Clearview AI, which has, you know, developed a global database of facial recognition database by scraping images off social media sites. And um, they are also defending a BIPA lawsuit, but they're all, their practices are being challenged all around the world and in, in Europe and elsewhere. So, and, and, and Clearview, we should point out, has been used by law enforcement agencies across the world. Apparently, it is quite successful. But yes, it has led to all sorts of uh, all sorts of soul searching yep. about uh, this kind of technology, right? Right, right absolutely. So, uh, you know, I think we'll see these conflicts continue. Mike, it's a fascinating issue. Thank you so much for uh, walking us through it today. Thanks, James.
Mike Swift is MLEX's Chief Global Digital Risk Correspondent, and he was speaking to us from San Francisco. And although Amy Miller was on leave this week, so wasn't able to join the podcast, you can certainly read the analysis of this issue, which was written by both Amy and Mike, at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just head straight for the News Hub tab. And subscribers, of course, have full access to the portfolio of Amy and Mike's reporting on both the McDonald's lawsuit and the Nuance litigation. Now, a separate but related conversation is taking place in Europe at the moment amid a proliferation of smart devices, TVs, handsets and connected appliances. Central to this landscape is the crucial role being played by voice assistants such as Siri, Alexa and Google Assistant. And in the European Union, questions are now being asked about the impact on competition of these connected devices. MLEX's editor-in-chief, Lewis Crofts, co-authored an interesting piece of analysis dealing with this very issue, and he joins me now from Brussels. Um, so, Lewis, what is the EU's line of inquiry on the issue of voice assistance at the moment? Well, as Mike has outlined, you know, this is really the new frontier for 10 years or so, 15 years, regulators have been battling over the soul of your phone, essentially, the patents in it, the services in it, the um, uh, connectivity of it to the to the internet, what you buy, what you do with it. And now the phone is kind of yesterday's story, and now we're moving on to new eras of technology, uh, the, known as the Internet of Things, as Mike said, which it connects more than just your phone, but everything from your toothbrush to your lawnmower to your fridge it connects that to the internet and what the european commission has been doing is it's launched an inquiry into this internet of things the consumer internet of things so not machines that connect to the um, uh, internet but things that you and i would buy um, our relatives when we run out of things run run out of ideas at christmas and what they're doing is looking at how this new this new sector is potentially being overrun by those same big old players that we've known for the last 10 years. And why is that? Because it fears that uh, the likes of Amazon, who owns Alexa, and Apple, uh, which has Siri, and Google, which has Google um, Assistant, uh, that they are going to be, as they've been the titans of the last 10 years of digital economies, they're going to be even more powerful or just as powerful at these at these new markets that are emerging. So what they've used, that they've used these very rare powers called a sector inquiry, which is not you know what you read in the newspapers usually, which is Brussels investigating one company, but instead it's Brussels subjecting an entire industry to scrutiny and sort of getting under the bonnet and seeing how it works and potentially identifying problems. It's done this, um, it, it does this rarely because it's quite a um, arduous and burdensome task. It involves asking questions of hundreds and hundreds of people. It's done it in pharmaceuticals. It's done it in retail banking. It's done it in energy. And it's, it usually re, you know, leads, to, leads to some investigations. So uh, essentially the European Commission is saying the technology is new, but some of the antitrust problems that we think might lurk beneath the surface are the same as the ones we have uh, dealt with previously in other contexts. So what are the main problems the European Commission uh, is pointing to here? So in its preliminary results, which um, released last week, it's come up with a 
a first look, a first view of the of the sector, and it's um, come up with four problems. Now it won't be drawn on these because it's got to go and get more data and test those with the market. But it thinks that the first problem is what's known as exclusivity and tying, which is if you get a device, um, only one of the voice assistant assistants will work on it. You can't load a second voice assistant onto that device. If you have a, a have a um, Amazon Fire Pad or whatever they're called, Fire, then uh, only um, Alexa will, will work on that. And if you and maybe the same for Siri in the iPhone. I'm not certain, but maybe less to do with devices, but certain services might only work with a um, a given voice assistant. Secondly, they're sort of worried that the voice assistant is becoming the new middleman, the new in- intermediary, and essentially. It puts itself between you, the user, and any number of services, you know, be it your um, supermarket or your pizza delivery boy or your um, uh, central heating. And it is grabbing the value. It's owning the consumer relationship, customer relationship and not um, the provider of the services. Third one is data. If you're the, the voice assistant can grab a whole load of data, it can see how you're interacting with your central heating or whatever, um, and therefore potentially sell that data to advertise to you different central heating. Uh, so it's all repair services. And so it's grabbing a whole load of data. And finally, um, standards and interoperability. So standards are, you know, the technical underpinnings of these things. And there is no common standard globally. Now, some of the companies have got together and arrived at a standard which they say is free and open to use. But um, having a sort of industry-led promise is sometimes not enough to keep regulators happy. They like to see a common sort of um, anchored standard that really is um, free for people to use. And therefore, anyone can make something that is interoperable with it. And you're not sort of having to go on bended knee to one of the big tech companies to beg for your robot lawnmower to be interactive with with a voice assistant. Now, uh, these are markets that are barely off the ground, right? I mean, these are barely off the drawing board. The companies would understandably feel quite aggrieved at the prospect of the European Commission, the main competition regulator in the European Union, getting on the front foot, getting out there and and, uh, getting ahead of what it sees as regulatory concerns. What have some of the responses been? Yeah, so... It's interesting because everyone knows Brussels for its big tech fights and it's taken on people who are already dominant. You know, that's what you, the, the, the law in Brussels is dominance abuse. So you find someone's dominant on a market. That's the Microsoft of the 2000s. It's the Google of the 2010s um, and, and, and so forth. These markets, you know, not everyone uses them. Yeah, you know, I, um, I don't, uh, unless sometimes by accident, you know, I, I, I say a word and my phone starts barking back at me. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, how can you argue that these are somehow an intrinsic part of um, a consumer's digital world and that the market is already crucial and there are no alternatives to, you know, if I want to search the Internet, I'm more likely to do it typing into my computer or typing into my phone, a phone browser or a search app than I am to, to bark at my, at my device. So quite rightfully, the, the companies can say, hang on, look, this is just, you know, we haven't got there yet with this market. Here you are sort of, you know, wielding your stick in a market which is just, just nascent and we need to leave this free to um, innovate unencumbered so that we can enjoy this future which, you know, is imaginable where we do 
uh, speak to our lawnmowers in the mornings as well as our wives and children. Uh, but Lewis, that is, I suppose, part of the game of uh, the regulation of technology. I mean, we've had this discussion about killer acquisitions and the need for regulators to be forward-looking because the the regulatory challenges of tomorrow might not necessarily be apparent today. But unless they get cracking today, of course, they end up uh, they end up uh, you know behind the eight ball. Uh, is this uh, another demonstration of that paradigm? It's exactly that, James. It's they can't use uh, the traditional rules because the you know the, the markets haven't yet become entrenched. But they fear that they will. They fear that these companies will own the relationships between you and your your pizza delivery. They fear that the um, technical underpinnings of the sector will be stitched up by a handful of companies, and so they're using this tool to get in early to, in, you know, in the in the competitional terms, ensure contestability, meaning that the market, you know, you can get into the market, you can have a slice of the market if you want to, and um, you know, traditionally, enforcers in Europe and elsewhere have been accused of only intervening when it's too late. So this is the use of a specific tool to try to uh, surface some of these problems uh, or some of these perceived problems and ensure that the market doesn't uh, tip into the hands of a couple of companies. So this is a fair investment of resources and, I suppose, emotional energy on the part of the regulator, which raises the question of whether or not this will lead anywhere. I mean, what is likely to be the tangible outcome of this research? Good question. After my last answer, you might think it's just a sort of political policy-based response of, you know, um, let's let's disinfect the sector with some some sunlight. Um, These sector inquiries have traditionally always led to investigations. The pharmaceuticals one led to, you know, five or six. There was a... um, probe a sector inquiry into uh, online commerce and that led to um, again four five six different investigations yeah they usually do find something you simply can't ask 200 300 400 people and not find a corpse somewhere so there could be some investigations um, the European Commissioner Margrethe Vestager at the press conference last week was you know pretty guarded about that uh, quite rightfully she says you know we're still looking at things but she notes that it's a fast-moving market and um, if they're going to act, uh, they probably need to act quite swiftly. They'll finish the report next year um, and, you know, if there will be some action, you'll, you'll, you will see it by then. Mm. Could it lead to something dramatic? I mean, you mentioned the issue of the coupling of platforms with the actual piece of hardware. I wonder, for example, if the European Union might be in a position to simply order that those two things be decoupled, that the platforms and the hardware um, have no interaction and that you can load both Siri and Alexa or whatever um, whatever voice recognition software you want uh, into your device. One of the things that the Commission's got on the table is a, draft, a piece of draft le- legislation called the Digital Markets Act, the DMA, and it contains 18 prohibitions to, impo- to be imposed on the likes of um, Amazon, and Google, Facebook and Apple. And that will be a ve- vehicle for solving many of these things. It says, for example, that uh, you can't sort of uh, unfairly guard data. You have to uh, make your systems inter- interoperable. Um, it says you must allow rival apps to be loaded onto your onto your platform. It guards against um, pre-installing and defaults. You know, the European Commission is often feared that if you, that, you know, the way we behave as consumers is we open the phone or the 
iPad or whatever out of the box and we never change a thing. Most people don't change a thing. You just you just use it. You maybe download WhatsApp and then and then that's it. And they're aware, intrinsically aware of the power of default settings and of pre-installed apps. And so there are measures in this draft legislation to try to soften those and make make the the new tablet computer uh, or the new mobile phone more more contestable. So I think a lot of the problems that you're seeing or that they think they found could well be addressed through this legislation. And that will be it's all it's under discussion. It will take another year. Um, but that could lead to the uh, quickest and deepest intervention into these businesses. You and Nicholas Hurst used the example of uh, of Bon Jovi, the US uh, rock band. I was hoping that you were going to repeat that. So let me prompt you to explain the Bon Jovi scenario. Yeah, one of the um, issues that um, you might have if you like soft rock um, is not only that you might have a lack of friends, but um, you might also be wanting to play this um, music on your on your on your device, and you would say to your uh, Amazon device, for example, uh, "Play, you know, play Bon Jovi, play some hair metal," uh, and it would automatically, and the, the and Alexa would automatically um, process this and would probably play you uh, the Amazon Music version if you wanted to hear it on your Spotify account, and you've also downloaded Spotify onto your tablet, you would have to say, play Bon Jovi on Spotify. So you, the, the, the instruction itself needs to be longer, you know, which some people might complain would be a, it's only adding two words, but um, would be an extra hurdle, an extra hindrance to reaching that, that additional service. You have to not just say, play Bon Jovi, but play Bon Jovi on Spotify, you know. Uh, to, in order to get beyond the defaults and the pre-installations of, of the device. So, um, you know, I'm sure that the rock fans around uh, around the world will be intervening um, deeply in this case to secure their right to listen to Bon Jovi on whatever platform they want. But, um, you yeah, know, it's a frivolous example, but you can see that play out across, the, the, you know, the argument is it makes it more difficult to get to get to rival services, that the, that the voice assistant is essentially a, a new form of gatekeeper. Lewis, uh, significant implications there for fans of hair metal, but uh, also for the broader community. So it's been great talking as always. Let's talk again soon. Thanks, James. Lewis Crofts is MLEX's editor-in-chief, and he was speaking to us from Brussels. His analysis was co-written with our EU chief antitrust correspondent, Nicholas Hurst, and it's ready for you to tuck into right now. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. And sadly, that's all we have time for on today's edition of the podcast. However, my biometric data will be downloading onto your device next Friday at around the same time. I hope to catch you again then. I'm James Paniki, MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. And from everyone at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you very much for your company. I'll see you again very, very soon. Bye for now. 